Behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown. A behind-the-scenes look at new flavors and the chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders who create them with your host, Emmanuel. Hey there. Welcome to episode 53 of the Flavors Unknown podcast. My guest today is Chef Matt Bolus from 404 Kitchen and Gertie's Bar in Nashville, Tennessee. We talk about our common passion for bourbon and rye and his series of culinary passport staycation dinners that he started during the pandemic. I am your host, Emmanuel LaRoche. If you are new to this podcast, I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the US, and every other week, I interview chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders around the country. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Flavors Unknown. You can find the show notes from this episode on the website flavorsunknown.com. And now, here is my conversation with Chef Matt Bolus. Hi, Chef. How are you? Great, Manuel. How are you? I am very good, and I'm very uh, excited to, to have you on the show. I've been uh, several times to uh, Nashville. And since then, I, um, I, I wanted to, um, you know, to have on you on Flavors Unknown. So finally, uh, we are making it happen. Yes, excited to be here. Sure. So how are you doing? How, are you, how is it going for you uh, during this uh, crazy time of, uh, of the pandemic here? I say today I'm great. The weather's fantastic. It's not too hot. It's not raining. It's, um, business looks good. So <laughs> it's an unusual day during this pandemic. We're good. We're surviving. And that's the, uh, I think that's the, the business model for most businesses these days is, is survival. You know, we're, we're keep, we're keeping people employed. We're, we're keeping our farmers, uh, moving through crops and, and animals and whatnot. And, and so it, that feels good. It's, uh, I'm not stressed out about it and not that it's not because it's difficult because it's just, it's, so there's so much uncertainty that really, what do you, what do you stress about? There's nothing specific to really focus stress on. So each day is a new day. Today's problems are what we deal with today and tomorrow's problems are what we don't worry about until tomorrow gets here and then we deal with them. So, uh, did you, did you close during the, uh, the pandemic at the beginning of it? We did at the beginning for several weeks and we kind of merged with our sister restaurant Adele's and started doing curbside when that was allowed, uh, or when we felt more, more so when we felt comfortable because in Nashville, they never said you have to close. We just, it was suggested, it was suggested we do the right thing. And so out of safety for ourselves and our, our guests, uh, and for our, our employees, we, we closed and, and then we started doing takeout and, you know, as the phases, came up we you know we well we closed in winter so we had to redesign a menu and and uh we opened up late spring and when when you uh, you reopened did you did you change your your menu did you uh, adapt your menu at, uh, at the situation we did you know it's we kept some staples on that that happened to work work well for the situation and that being we felt our guests were going to be looking more for takeaway food, you know, pre-orders, something that they could cook at home or something they could pick up and, and just take home and eat like any takeaway order. And very popular staples that we wanted to keep on actually lent well to that. So we kept a number of those. And then as we redesigned our menu, we, we kind of focused on, okay, what's, what's going to be food that's a touch simpler, both in preparation and in, and finishing. Uh, what's going to travel well, what's going to, you know, uh, you, you live 15 minutes from here, but as luck would have it, you got takeaway from us and, and there was a wreck and it took you 45 minutes to get home. Right. And I don't want you to unbox this stuff and think, ah, oh, it's all, it's all garbage. No, I, you know, we, so we try to think of, uh, in terms of that too. And, you know, not the exercise that any of us wanted to do, but it ended up being kind of a fun thing to do because we had to, we had to think outside our normal, scenario and and the menu that we produced we, all of us were excited about it's it's vibrant it's very you know ingredient focused in the sense of uh, you know if we're putting 
squashes, you know, different squashes on the menu, that's what you're going to taste. It's not muddled by a bunch of other crazy flavors. So, so what are the um, like the staples that you uh, you kept like from uh, the original menu then and and adapt? We kept our our tri tip and our uh, our our smoked fried chicken. We kept the bolognese. Mm -hmm. Kind of think uh, of. Uh, we kept the rabbit, but we turned it into a pot pie instead of a, a stew. We do a, a really traditional French braised rabbit with uh, Dijon, and I love that. Oh, uh -huh. it's it's um, my my seven year old daughter will eat it now. <laughs> She actually, my <laughs> wife made chicken pot pie last night, in fact, and I got a text from her that said, uh, "Your daughter told me that this isn't the the right meat to use for pot pies. I should have used rabbits." <laughs> <laughs> That's so, cute. Yeah, She's you know, an they, expert already. Right, they've gone. They've gone from the cute animals we see eating the vegetables in the garden to man, these are delicious. Yeah. So, so we kept those, cool. and then from there it was, which is the part I really enjoyed. It was okay. We want to use these ingredients, and this is the type of dish that we would normally do. Now, how do we take that and make sure that it's bright and delicious, and also you know simplify it, and and in a more rustic a refined sense and and so a lot of the things that we came up with you know, like i said we're super proud of and and uh have turned out better than we expected for some of them did your consumers um or do your customers like ask for specific uh, uh dishes as well did you reach out to them to try to understand what uh they were in the mood for we did well we talked to some of our some of our regulars that uh we've just become good friends with and uh, got different ideas but You know, knock on wood, it's the support has been great and really unsolicited have gotten some feedback on the new menu about, you know, how much better they felt it was. You know, maybe that was just a, hey, we feel like we should say something nice in these times, but regardless, you know, it felt good to hear that because we were proud of it and we thought we were doing the right thing. And, and to get that feedback, uh, especially when it goes to, From, from guests that we didn't even know that were friends with investors or friends of friends that called up and said, Hey, you know, so and so just called and said, this is the best menu they've ever, they've ever eaten at the floor for. It was, it's nice. It's nice to hear. Nice. That. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and a lot of people, you know, wants to get like, uh, you know, comforted and, um, they want to, you know, to eat like more indulgent food and comfort food. Yeah. So I, I, I was curious of, um, understanding like what personally, what kind of dishes bring you, um, comfort. You know, when you cook at home, for instance, that's a a, a hard question. That you know, it depends on depends on the season. It depends on the the time of day. I I like to focus. Most of my love comes from what I call poor food because I don't have any other better words to describe it. You know, it's it's cuisines that that used what little they had to make the best they could. And I, I, a lot of Mediterranean cooking. I love fresh vegetables and the crispness of those. And I love the the spices that come out of the Mediterranean. But you know, you don't want a fresh tomato salad in in January. To me, that's when I'm I'm getting into the cocovins and the confits and the traditional French that I learned in school, just because they're 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 more they're more season appropriate. And plus, they're you know there's there's few things that I enjoy more than than simmering duck legs in their own fat on the stovetop for hours and hours and hours to produce this succulently rich duck leg, you know, because I don't have a, a large deep fat fryer at home. I just have one of the tabletop versions. I can actually then finish them by deep frying them to crisp that skin up in duck fat. And it's, oh, you know, I like, I love braised foods. I love, I love meats that you can put in in with vegetables and, and juices and and bury in a bed of coals and come back a couple hours later you know what is what's that dish where they put the bread around is it a daub is that what it is am i saying that right d-a-u-b yeah yeah daub. yeah yeah i mean that when that when i cook that at home it's it oh god <laughs> i mean just <laughs> joy in in my heart you know <laughs> So we have seen you a lot, uh, you know, on on Instagram, like a lot of other chefs. But recently, I've I've seen you playing a lot with uh, like ice cream. So you, what's what's the deal <laughs> with all these new ice cream tests that you are doing here? <laughs> you know, it's it's crazy. I don't uh, I don't have until recently. I really never had much of a sweet tooth. I'll eat dessert, but it's not something that I would just specifically go out for. 
And recently, for whatever reason, I've discovered this love of ice cream and I've been on this venture to make a vanilla ice cream, which is arguably the simplest of flavors, but that is so perfectly made with the balance of, of flavor and fat and creaminess and iciness that you want no other flavor, right? And, you know, then in this, in this quest, uh, somebody said, well, but what about those who can't enjoy ice cream because they can't have dairy? And so I've, I've ventured into the, the dairy free side and which has been a, a, just an experience between oat milk and almond milk and cashew milk and coconut milk and, and whole bean versus paste versus extract versus a combination thereof. And I feel bad. I, I was texting a good friend of mine who's a chef as well. You know, after almost 25 years in this business, every recipe I've ever experienced, you just add the extract, you cook it, you move on, right? And I was reading one the other day out of a book and, and the author was saying, well, extracts are alcohol and, and alcohol evaporates. And I thought, God, this makes so much sense. And so <laughs> what I had to do immediately was make another batch of vanilla ice cream, right? And I used the paste in it. The base, yeah. And then once the base was cool... Then I added my, um, my extract. It was a world different. It was noticeably different. And so, you know, I, I love the fact that I can, I can take a recipe that I've made numerous times before and one little simple timing change, not even ingredient change, just a timing change, different end result. Did you finish your quest? Then uh, did you achieve like the I, ultimate vanilla ice cream have, <laughs> with uh, have plant achieved, protein? Yes, I have achieved the base. Now I will explore the, the, the nuances of vanilla being, you know, the Tahitian or the Mexican or the Madagascar or the Indian because each has their own, uh, strength well, and bias. Yeah. And so, but like I said, I mean, I, you know, I want you to, to come to my place and, and just take the first bite and either be brought back to your grandfather's house or, or a time, you know, that is really memorable and joyful, or I want you to look at your spouse or significant other partner, whoever you're there with and say, wow, you know, I really love you, but um, our relationship's <laughs> over because I'm staying is, here because this I'm is eating. my world now. <laughs> I'm eating Matt's ice cream in Nashville. I'm, go, I'm, I'm moving. Marry this ice cream and, and you'll get the divorce papers later. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Very cool. Obviously, it's a lofty goal, but you know, we all, we all have to have that. Exactly. So, Chef, talk to us a little bit about your concept in Nashville. So, you have the 404 kitchen, uh -huh. and then, of course, on the basement, you have like the Gertie's Bar, so which is another exciting location. So, can you uh, <laughs> take us through a little bit about, um, you know, those, uh, those two concepts and the kind of food that you are uh, serving? And, and we can go to the bar after. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, 404, it, it's, I've never been a man of, of great words because I always get, I, I can never think of the right thing when you say what style of food you cook. I can never, I don't have this, this catch line that, that sums it all up. Southern born and raised. My grandfather, my paternal grandfather was Lebanese and, and is my first food memory is, is Lebanese food. I went to a French culinary school in England. And I start a lot of dishes like an old Sicilian lady. So I think it's probably, <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, I'm a true mutt. What a mix. <laughs> yeah, right. And I love all kinds of food. So I mean, honestly, I, th you know, I think it's, I think it's a Southern based cuisine, a Southeastern United States based cuisine with heavy Mediterranean French influences. Okay. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I, I really like, I try to try to cook a lot of things your grandmother did just, just in a more refined, better way sometimes it works and sometimes you say no my grandmother did that a whole lot better <laughs> so so how do you approach like a you know like a like a dish what's your source of inspiration with this really melting pot of uh, you know like the southern roots and then the french uh, education in the english uh, you know country a british country and cooking like a sicilian italian woman you said what? so <laughs> so what, what's what's your inspiration I like to taste in everything. I want to. I want to try it in every form: raw, cooked, braised, stewed, pureed, 
roast, whatever, right? Uh, but mainly you start by just tasting and, and, and you know that you taste this particular ingredient. And from there you say, Oh, well, this, this and this go with it. And this, this and this go with those. And I kind of make a list of all the things that would, would work well together. They, you know, this is a, this is a, a, a dinner party that everybody's going to bring something to the table, right? I read a quote a long time ago that I didn't understand that I very much get now. And I wish I could remember who said it, but the quote was a young chef looks for what they can add to a dish. An older chef looks, looks for what they can take away from the dish. And, and yeah. I think that's mm-hmm. where I'm at in my career is I, you know, if I put a, uh, um, peppers, roasted peppers on a dish and that's the dish, right? I want you, I want to use as little as possible to, accentuate that pepper and amplify that pepper so that you taste the beauty of what the pepper was to me when I ate it. Right. And so for that dish, I start thinking, Oh, okay. What, uh, there's, there's seasonings that, that I'm thinking sumac or zatar from the Middle East. I'm thinking olive oil and, and anchovies, you know, from the, the Sicilian style, low herbs, herbs and peppers, cause they're, they're growing in my garden together. Right. So I see them together. I, I smell them together. And so I'll start there and just start playing around and, and I try to start small. And if something needs to be added, you, you add to it. One of the things that, that I always focus on is acid, brightness, whether it be lemon juice or lime juice or, or apple cider vinegar or anything, you know, acid is going to bring out flavor in a big way. It's going to balance things and, and it's, it's amazing. Still to this day to me, when you're tasting a dish and, and it's, it's there, but it's not, you know, it, it's so good, but there's just something missing. And it's, you know, that, that spritz of lemon juice in there and, and you mix it up and you don't taste lemon. What you taste is this bright dish that you thought was almost perfect that now is, has, is starting to shine. So uh, do you have inspiration that comes as well outside of food? Because here you're talking about, mm. you know, like taste association. So it's based on your, I would say memory of, um, I mean, taste memory, you know, of um, things that you have done before or tasted, you know, before. It's about, um, you know, as well, that seems like what grows together goes together, you know, right. and then yeah. this idea of like the acidity, like brining up like the profile of a dish. But do you have anything that's um, ever that inspire you coming outside of food? Music. Music. Okay. Music, definitely. You know, I, uh, we were in the kitchen the other day, my, Chef de Cuisine and I, the only two in the kitchen, and we were just playing around with some recipes for this, this new staycation menu. And, and she had Nina Simone and John Lee Hooker and, and BB King playing. And, and I told her, I said, we have to change the radio. She said, I thought you liked this music. I said, I do. But right now we're trying to cook this, this kind of Scandinavian, Ethiopian, Harlem mix of food. And, and I hear this music and all I want to do is eat oysters on the half shell and, and drink cold beer. Like, you know, that's, So I can hear music and gain inspiration food-wise from that, for sure. You're working a lot as well. You were talking about during the pandemic, you know, it was important for you to, you know, support the the farmers, support, you know, like all the different purveyors that, uh, you know, that uh, obviously you are working with. And I know you are, you know, you spend a lot of time with seafood producers, you know, fishermen, Mm -hmm you know, meat farmers and so on. So can you take us a little bit through how you create like a strong relationship, you know, between the chef and, you know, the purveyors that, um, you know, you have been in, conne- in connection before? I want to meet you as a purveyor. You know, I want to know what kind of person you are. And, and I'm, I'm horrible about asking you random questions that have nothing to do with business at hand, right? But it's kind of, I guess, my way of, of a little bit of, character you know, experience and you know what, what's your sense of humor like and and what are your interests outside of the of the farm or the or the boat or you know i just want to i don't want you to bring me this beautiful ingredient and then i find out that you're a heinously bad person because then i can't use your ingredients no matter how good they are right i just that's morally i don't want to i don't want to deal with that kind of person and then i want to see your farm i want to see how you how you treat the land how you treat your animals your produce your you know are you just are you picking them and throwing them in a bucket or are you one of these, one of these farmers that, that 
has cold water on hand and, and you're throwing vegetables fresh into cold water. So they're somewhat shocked, but they're in a good environment, right? They're not just sitting in the hot sun and starting to wilt immediately. Are your animals happy? You know, ha- you can taste happy animals. I hate that. That sounds really morbid. I know, but you know, I, I remember, I remember the, the first time I saw a farm fresh egg, right? And it was in London and it was one of my French chefs, Christophe, who is just a character in and of himself. And I, I have this egg yolk in my hand, right? And it's tall and it's almost rusty orangey yellow, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I've separated these eggs and we were in pastry class and I smelled it. It smelled okay. And, and, but I'm holding it in my hand and I, and I, uh, I went up to my chef and I said, Chef Christophe, you know, is, is this egg yolk good? And he says, Oh, mon petit, it looks fine. <laughs> and I said, oh, Yeah, it smells okay too. And he goes, So why is it wrong? I said, I don't know. It's not, it's not yellow. It? You know, it's not mm-hmm. a, it's, it's not a store bought egg. And he said something in, something in French, which I know the definition or I know the meaning of now and, and about Americans and, and walked off. And I thought, okay, I, I guess I'll use it. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. My, my, uh, the only French I speak is really dirty kitchen French. It's, it's kind of funny. And I can think, I can think a long rainy weekend in Geneva and the Ozzy Osbourne show for that. Okay, got it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's a that's another story, but you know that's when I it was like, oh, wh- why is this? And so I had to learn about it. And, and oh wow, you know, when chickens eat what chickens are supposed to eat, you know, bugs and seeds and little things like that, they produce they produce this this yolk that it that is that is not flat, right? Mm-hmm. And it's not this nearly translucent, uh, pale yellow. They're actually very tall and fat and, and rich and, and, you know, and then you see something like a duck egg yolk or, or I've gotten a line on some goose eggs that I've been using. Goose egg yolk nearly looks like a small tennis ball. It's beautiful. So, you know, I want to see that. I want to know how you're treating animals. I want to know how you're, how you're growing things. Are you, are you bringing me these beautiful, uh, vegetables and then spraying them all with all kinds of stuff. You know, that's not good. And I don't focus so much on organic. I think that's great. Uh, my biggest priority is sustainability because I don't care if it's biodynamic, organic, if it's, you know, rice recycled or whatever you want to call it. If it's not sustainable, then why are we doing it? Right. Cause eventually you're not going to have it. Right. And why is it not sustainable? And so I look at that and. And I'm, I'm almost loyal to a fault in purveyors, uh, in the sense of price is important, but it's not the determining factor for me. Did you keep your contact? Uh, especially I'm thinking that when you were in Charleston before, you know, with some mm. of the fishermen, the fishermen, <laughs> and because, now, because yeah. now you're, you're in Nashville. So obviously there's no coastline over there. So, <laughs> so, yeah, and, um, so I, did yeah, you, I definitely did you keep did. contact with them. Yeah, definitely okay. did. And, and even if I can't buy from them, I can still use them as a resource for, for different, you know, for knowledge or whatnot. And, you know, I, I love it. We worked with a guy from Abundant Seafood when I was at Fig and then Mark Mahefka. And he came in one day and he said, this, this guy keeps calling me and I don't understand what he's saying. And, and he's, he's talking fast. And, and Mark's, Mark's got this big personality and he's this great, great guy. And long story short, it was Eric Repair. And. <laughs> Eric had heard about this amazing seafood that Mark had, right? Yeah. And he yeah, called yeah. and said, Hey, I, you know, I, I want to buy your fish. And Mark's like, Yeah, well, I, I, you know, are you in Charleston? I'll stop by. He's like, No, I'm in New York. He's like, Yeah, oh, I, I saw the Charleston. He's like, <laughs> He's like, That's fine. And, you know, er, Eric's got a, a fairly thick accent. And, you know, yeah. He's, he's, and he, he speaks a little quicker. And Mark's just, you know, old Southern boy. And, and, you know, basically comes down to Eric's offering him twice the money. And Mark's like, Yeah, I don't, I don't know who this guy thinks he is, but I'm not shipping to him. And, and myself and the guys working with like, you, you just told Eric repair. No, like, what are you doing? <laughs> but you know, that's, he was loyal to his local guys. And, and I yeah, love yeah, that, yeah. you know, and, and uh, one of the things I love about Nashville is other than that fresh seafood, you know, I can tell you within an hour and a half where 90% of my ingredients come from other than you say our stock carrots and onions, things like that, that we just use for stocks and sauces and stuff like that. Everything else comes from within, you know, like I said, an hour and a half, two hours most of here. Uh, and I think that's fantastic because if I want to 
if I want to take a, a, the whole kitchen to the, to Bear Creek Farms to see the cattle and the pigs that we buy, you know, in an hour, we're there. And then in 45 minutes from there, we can take them to the processing plant. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's great. And Bear Creek's a perfect example. You drive up to Bear Creek Farm and, and Leanne and Bill have this beautiful farmhouse and these rolling hills down in Leaper's Fork. And then next to it, it looks like a shack. And, you know, my first question was like, huh, well, I mean, I wonder if that was like the original house and they bought it. It's never tore it down. No, it, it's a, a house, a, a small little like shack house that Leanne had built for the sows when they have babies so that she can be close mm. to them. Okay. And that's the kind of caring, you know, that I want to see. Like these people genuinely care for their animals. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you build you build a relationship and then obviously yeah. trust, you know, then uh, comes in and then they are there as well to uh, support you when uh, you need something, you know, special that's, and that's and it. that that's that's critical. When things like like the pandemic happened and we all get shut down, you know, Bill and Ann were the first to say, Hey, so we're all in this together. What can we do to help yeah. you all? I was yeah, like, yeah, wow, I'm thinking about what I can do to help you. And like, let's just, you know, figure it out. Like, this is mm -hmm. okay. Great. <laughs> so you have those, you know, new things that I've seen, uh, you know, on your websites and as well, you know, I've been reading about it, but um, can you explain to us this collaboration that you're doing that you call like the culinary passport staycation dinner the series? Staycation, yeah. So we, it came up during quarantine when we were all stuck at home and a lot of us had vacations planned that were canceled and, and you know, the kids were at home and everything else. And, and, you know, all the food festivals got canceled and all these things. And, and so it's like, what, what people want to do is get out. And it's not just, they want to get out. They, you know, they wanted to go to, to New York or they wanted to go to, to Italy or wherever it is. Right. And so how do we bring that to them? And nobody can travel. And when we thought about this, it, you couldn't just hop on a plane and, and fly up to, up to New York and, and go grab Marcus Samuelson and say, Hey, dude, let's cook together. Let's do a dinner together. So we just started reaching out to people and, and, and it, it got met with a lot of enthusiasm. It's like, God, I would love to do a dinner in Nashville and I just can't be there. So yeah, let's do this. And, and so it's, you know, yeah, it's like, Hey, you know, you want some great barbecue from, from Raleigh? Cause you were supposed to be there for the summer to see your, your aunt and uncle. Well, we're going to bring them to us. And. Andrew Zimmern and, and Marcus Samuelson and Carla Hall. And, and so it, it's a way for us to offer a little bit of, you know, get away from the normal, break your, your routine of uncertainty and, and travel a little without having to go anywhere, without having to, you know, worry about it. And, and the best part is, you know, you can come pick it up and take it home. You don't have to wear a mask. <laughs> you can sit in your backyard and have a picnic, uh, a food that you could only get it at, Red Rooster, one of Marcus's restaurants. So, so how do so yeah? So how does it work uh, practically? Because you let's say that you have the one coming with uh, Mark Samuelson, for instance, Marcus Samuelson. So, mm -hmm. so of course he's he's not in Nashville, correct? So, so right. how do people are going to get access to to the food? Uh, a lot of back and forth between Marcus and I about a menu, a lot of recipe sharing, and then uh, trials and and tweaking things and and. You know, we, we came up with a fun menu and we've been cooking this food. And, and this is, you know, this is great for, for myself and our staff too, because, you know, one of the things we love is, is having a, a guest chef in or staging, you know, when we go work at another chef's restaurant. And so we get to do that now on a, on a very regular basis. And, and we get to experience other things, which in turn is, is another form of inspiration for me, as well as, a, you know, another way for me to learn. Without, you know, I don't have to travel to do this either. It's a blessing and a curse in this industry. You know, I get to go to New York and work with Marcus Samuelson for a week and do these dinners, right? And, but the curse is I get to tell my wife, Hey, honey, I'm, I'm off to New York City for a week, uh, to cook with Marcus Samuelson. Sure. And she's like, Oh, great. Yeah. So I'm going to stay home with our two <laughs> kids and, and you're going to go have fun with Marcus. That sounds, sounds delightful. You know, and now I get to, I get to do this. I get to work with Marcus. I get to make the soup, but I also get to bring it home to him. Right. So she gets to enjoy it too. Um, and, and to me, it's like, that's, that's it. People, people that want to go that have always thought, man, I'd love to eat his food and, and, but I've never had the chance to. And now I can't. Oh, no, you can't. We're bringing it here. Uh -huh. You know, so who so, you are going to uh, collaborate with? So I heard Marcus Samuelson. I heard uh, Andrew Zimmer. 
And Andrew who Zimmern, else? Carla Hall, one of the most amazing humans on the planet. And, and is from Nashville. So she was super excited about it. A good friend of mine, Vivek Serti is we're going to do an India menu. He and I did a dinner together a long time ago. Uh, so we're actually bringing that menu back with, we've both matured and, and done bigger and better things since. And so we're going to revisit that. So, you know, an Indian flair. That's the great thing. I get to work with all these wonderful people and, and uh, try new things and experience new things. And, you know, I've got hundreds of cookbooks at home that I try new stuff out of on a regular basis. But as my wife would tell you, why can't you cook the recipe in the book? I'm like, I don't know, because I'm a chef. <laughs> I, see, I see things exactly. I don't want to change. Recipes, like, recipes are for guidelines. That's it. You know, you don't right. have to She's follow like, the recipe. But if I want to try, you know, Gordon Ramsay's ABC dish, that's what I want to try. Not Matt Bolas's version of it. I'm like, okay, that's fair. <laughs> so um, I'm actually, you know, this is this is Marcus Samuelson, and yeah. uh, it's going to be Andrew Very Zimmerman, cool. and, and and yeah, it's it's me. It, okay. It's been fun for sure. Very nice, very nice. So now I, I would like that we um, go down a little bit, like um, you know, several steps, and we go to yeah. your basement, and we <laughs> we have a little. We have a, I'm excited with this part. With like, uh, we go to your famous uh, bar called like the Gertie's Bar, yeah, Gertie's Whiskey uh, Bar, and which is one of the most famous you know place in nashville when it comes to whiskey and i would say bourbon rye obviously so yeah can you talk to us about uh, about this place and especially where this um i, I probably be you born in a in a bottle of bourbon in kentucky but you know yeah. where's this passion where this passion comes from well and so i'm originally from kentucky and just have a you know a long history of of bourbons in the family and and so I think it came about naturally. Uh, it was always my drink of choice. And uh, when we were at our original location, our little tiny 40-seat place, we start off with a typical list. And with my inability to say no to, to fun, cool, delicious stuff, it, it built and grew and grew and grew. And, and so we had, I wish I could paint the perfect picture for you, but you can imagine I three shelves that were eight feet long, but we had three tiers on each shelf. And... and and it was full. Like, I mean, from top to bottom, it was full and, and hundreds of selections. We had so many, we didn't even, we couldn't even hardly count them. And you could, God forbid, you wanted one of the top ones in the back corner. Like the bartender had to be, you know, nearly an acrobat to get to it. So when we came over here, when we got the opportunity to take this place over, we saw this place. Across the street. Thought, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We thought, oh, look at this wall. Look at this gigantic 30 some odd foot wall that's you know 15 <laughs> feet tall and you know i just uh, it was one of my partners like look you cannot hit four digits and i was like oh but we can he's like no 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 what i'm saying is we can't okay <laughs> we, we, we don't need to and so but what it did was allow us to really spread out our collection and see what we had and see where we needed to add and and to balance and and you know and then the great thing was people took notice of it, not just customers, but purveyors and distillers. And so people come to us saying, mm -hmm, hey, mm -hmm. how do I get my bottle on that wall? And I thought, man, you're actually asking, <laughs> this is cool. And it grew. And yeah, so we have 700-ish selections right now from all over the world. Yeah. And it's, it's just one of those things that it's kind of a hobby passion turned into an obsession, I guess you would say, but but turned into something that, you know, that that it is today what you know what we've created the best place to stay for during quarantine <laughs> i should have known that before like in a gorgeous bar right, so exactly. uh, yeah so uh, do you specialize like um you know do you have like a specific focus um you know on the type of um of uh, whiskey that you you put on the shelves like well small just, batch or like no nah, just unique. because we're of our location we're bourbon heavy not unlike the, the whiskey bars in london that'll be scotch heavy right they have access to stuff that we don't have access to and we have access to bourbons that they don't and so uh it is more bourbon centric the focus is on really on flavor and, and flavor profile and the nuances of it you know and and what people have realized over the course of probably the last 10 years is like much like wine you you have uh 
a vineyard that releases the same Cabernet year after year after year, but 08 was better than, than 96 and, you know, blah, blah, blah. The same thing with, with these whiskeys, in particular, the, some of the smaller producers, the, you know, you, you take the Van Winkles or the Willets that every barrel is different, right? And, and, and it can produce, I've, I have barrels that were produced on the same day, barreled on the same day. It actually came out of the still, the, the same still, right? Not even that yeah, they were yeah. made the same day. The exact same liquid put in two different barrels stored on top of each other and they're different. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we, we buy that way and, and we'll pick up some for collections that, that just, you know, show the breadth of the, of the family, but that's where it starts. But you know, you can come in and try four different vintages of, of a name. And it's really fun to see like, Oh wow, this is th- the same recipe, right? The same ingredients. And, and, and you start asking, why did it change? Because it should, you know, in my world, in the culinary world, if you make the same thing with the same ingredients four different times and it tastes different each time, you're doing something wrong, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, here at the bourbon or like the whiskey or spirits in general, the one that are aging, obviously yeah. you have like the impact of, uh, you know, like the, the you know, the aging in the, in the barrels. And then, and even yeah, now yeah. you can even, you can even have like the, the finishes, you know, with the different casks. So that's going to as well have a... You know, that, that's a complete another and... rabbit hole. And I can't tell you the hours of conversations that I've had with distillers about barrels and the wood and when was it cut and where was it cut from and how old was the tree and how was the wood dried and how was it charred and what was the fuel for the charring fire. And I mean, it's just like there's so many variables that you just you almost quit thinking about it and just enjoy it for what it is. To me, it, it's it's one of those things where somebody will say, oh, no, that's that's a horrible bourbon. Guys, is it? Or is it just not your liking? Because some people like super spicy. Some people like super sweet. Yeah, it doesn't make it bad. It just makes it not to your liking, which is why I think there's so many out there now. Because you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, oh, is there 15, 20 selections on the shelf? Maybe. Mm-hmm. And now mm-hmm. bourbon has aisles and aisles and aisles of shelves. So, Yeah, and you, you were talking about the Willet. I mean, uh, Willet is one of my... I, I love their... Uh, you know their uh, small batch like the rye. It's it's yep. one of my favorite uh, my favorite rye. And I know it's a tough question because there's so many varieties. And then and uh, and uh, you know depending of the time of the day and if it's you know <laughs> if, <laughs> sure. before dinner or after dinner. But you know this you have you have like um like a one or two like main one that it's like your go to. Uh, well, you know, Will, Will it is definitely I'm like you. Will it, it would be my desert island. If you eradicated every brand in my life and, and put me on a desert island, and that would be the one that I would want to take with. And I, I sure. love their distilleries too. I mean, this area, yeah, the place cool. is really beautiful. Yeah, it's cool. The, 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 Col- the Colesman family, good friends. Uh, they're great people. Again, you know, you meet them and you realize they're just, they're a great family. Just for the little story, when I was visiting mm-hmm. the, the distilleries uh, and we were, you know, in the, in the place, uh, you know, where they were aging and you have all the barrels and so on. Mm-hmm. And they, they was like, two or three huge like uh, ham that were like drying, you know, in yeah. a bag. And we say, what is oh, yeah. this? They said, oh, this is Sean Brock. This is yeah. ham. I say, what? Yeah. <laughs> Hanging with like, in there. <laughs> exactly. That was funny. Sorry. Yeah. And, you know, but <laughs> Joe, you, you, you think about that, but, but that goes back to old Mezcal traditions, you know, and they're, when they're hanging turkeys or rabbits or chickens in the still while they're distilling Mezcal. And so why not? You, you have these vapors, you know, you walk into that Rick house and that's all you smell is that, that angel share. And, and so, you know, it's, it's a great theory and it proved to make just an amazing ham. Uh, why not take all those vapors and let it soak in as it, as it ages? I mean, completely. So you were talking about Willet, this is your yeah. go-to, like to bring in an island. What, what yeah, else? That would be, that would be the one. Um, you know, rye as well. Rye to me is one of those I think like it's that, that kind of got a bad name for a long time, but is a fantastically delicious spirit. You know, the, from the mm-hmm, caramels mm-hmm. and the and the, the toffee notes. The the uh, we've got one here that I'm I'm not a Tootsie Roll fan, but the chocolate that comes off of it. The only way I can describe it is is the, the best flavor a Tootsie Roll could ever hope to have. What know? is the and brand so, on this one? Do you remember? That's Willet. It's Willet. Oh, the Willet yeah. too. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. it's, it's uh, a barrel Absolutely. we picked called All Right, All Right, All Right. Um, <laughs> okay, but again, like you said, it just depends. You know, if you're looking for a good mixing rye, to me, George Dickel has one of the best ryes for the money there is. You I know, like some on the 17, 1792 as well. There's some oh, gr- yeah. great one. Yeah, the, they have if, done if some you're good, having our good job. Bolognese, the James Pepper rye. Oh, such an oh. amazing pairing. Just, just killer. 
so yeah, I mean that you know, there's I, I really got into the Japanese, which is more Scotch esque, but the balance and symmetry and I'm trying to think of the right word, the delicateness of their flavors in, in their in their whiskeys are just stunning. And one of those that truly you have to choose, do I, do I want my piece of cake or do I want to eat it too? Like the, I, I I'll find myself sitting with those glasses. Like, I don't know if I just <laughs> want to sit and smell it more than I want to drink it or drink it more. You know, it's, it's so, yeah. Can we talk as well a little bit about, uh, you know, you being a chef and focusing on flavors and you were talking about the most important aspect as well in your in the whiskey that you have is about flavors. So, uh, do you, have you done any um, exercise of like um, you know whiskey or like bourbon rye, you know, and food pairing? Uh, you know, some Completely. of your dishes. How, yeah. how any suggestion about things that goes well? Um, you know, yeah. with um, different profile of a bourbon or, or rye. So perfect. You know, you get the pork and rye, roasted pork chop glass of rye whiskey, you know, the, the pork bolognese. I always loved the poached pe uh, pears that we did at Cordon Bleu. And, it, you know, old school French desserts that most people don't get excited about. And I can understand why, because it's, it's a pear. People don't think about it. But uh, a good friend of mine, Scott Crawford out of Raleigh, North Carolina, came up and did a dinner uh, with Kavalon whiskey. Actually, it's Taiwanese. And they had a sherry cast finish. You're talking about the cast finishes. Okay, so sherry, pears, okay, those go together. Smoky pear, that goes together. And so we took this this manzanilla cast finished Taiwanese whiskey and a little bit of butter and some sorghum. And we gently poached these pears. Just mind-blowing the flavor that came off of it. I was just, it, it was like they were the perfect marriage of flavors. And one of those that it was a dessert that you could see like, oh, you're just going to serve me this piece of sliced fruit and the braising liquid and that's <laughs> it. And then you eat it and you go, touche. Like that's, yeah. you know, I love apples and bourbon in many forms from, from apple pie to using apples. I roasted some butternut squash. I believe it was a, a pork tenderloin. And I did it on the, the big green egg. I put this, this fat cap on tenderloin on the top rack and underneath that I built a little, a little boat of aluminum foil with butternut squash and garlic and herbs and, and gold rush apples and, and drizzled bourbon all over it, drizzled a, a buffalo trace bourbon all over it and just let it slow cook. Oh, you know, you get these crispy apples with this bright, oaky, you know, woody, earthy flavor. Yeah. And it's, it's so. Yeah, that's the thing too. It's it, when you get outside the burn of the alcohol, there's flavors in whiskeys that you would never think of marshmallows and mints and eucalyptus and, and honeydew. And, and it's insane. And you can find it in anything. I mean, we got a barrel of wild turkey here. It, it was the first bourbon. And the reason I bought the barrel is the first bourbon that I'd ever smelled honeysuckle on. And, and honeysuckle to me is when I smell that when I'm driving home at night from, from the restaurant and, and I've got my window down and I can smell honeysuckle in the air spring is here like you know the, everything's going to be that bright green and fresh and crisp and and it's it's that scent that only lasts for a couple of weeks but you try to to soak it all in and and I, as soon as we we poured that in the glass from the barrels like oh this is it it was a true love at first sight have you ever done like a like a menu um you know with a bourbon pairing at your at your restaurant or, or not oh, yet many 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 times many Absolutely. many times okay yeah. okay yeah we've done it with loads of people we've from buffalo trace and there we did one with a whole weller collection the entire oh, weller great. line we've done it with four roses medley brothers Kavalon. we did it we featured all their their line at that dinner yeah, I mean, just that, that's a that's a very regular, regular thing. Very cool. In, in normal cool. times, I should say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, yes. Hopefully, in the, whatever the new norm is going to be, that uh, you can do that again. <laughs> right, I agree. I agree. So uh, let's go back a little bit of uh, in time. So wh what compelled you to uh, to become a chef? The dislike of my job. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm... Okay. Um, I put simply, no, I, um, <laughs> I cooked, I cooked in restaurants all through college and I started interning at Merrill Lynch. I still 
booked at restaurants. After college, I got a job as a financial advisor at Merrill Lynch and, and did that for several oh, wow. years. And, and um, you know, I, <laughs> that's I, different. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, you know, that was what I had told myself I wanted to be. I would, I found myself, you know, when I would take clients out looking for the best restaurants to go to. And I, and I found myself, if I had a great day, I would go home and cook a big dinner and invite people over. If I had a bad day, I'd do the same thing. And I still filled in at the, the restaurant that I'd started working at from time to time. They, you know, somebody would call out or whatever. And I'd get a random phone call and be like, yeah, I'll, I'll run the grill tonight. Absolutely. And, and so one day I just realized I'm a lot happier at midnight on my hands and knees scrubbing a kitchen floor after a great service, that euphoric feeling, that it, in, adrenaline rush, those endorphins, than I am sitting behind this desk in a, in a nice suit earning great money. You know, I mean, for the, my age, I was earning tremendous money. I would tell you the number and you're like, well, it's not that much, but it felt like a lot to me. And, sure, sure. Uh, but I was unhappy. I was unhappy with everything. And you know what I do? I went home and I cooked a big dinner and and I told my mom, I said, I, I, I went over to my parents' house that weekend. I said, you yeah, know, I think, I think I want to cook for a living. She said, great. I said, yeah, okay. but you know, wow. I got, I got this job at Merrill Lynch and we paid for you, you and dad paid for sure. a degree in, like, in, in, in business. And, and she's like, and you're always going to have that degree. I said, well, uh, you know, I just, there was a, that dilemma. But yeah. That Monday I, I resigned right then and there. And, uh, I went back to the restaurants to make sure that I wasn't an idiot, right? And it was kind of like this early midlife crisis. I wasn't, I wasn't married, didn't have kids, and you know. And both my parents were so supportive, like, yes, if you're going to do this, do this now. And so, what I found was I was working two different restaurants, and I was doing about eighty-five, ninety hours a week. And really, I had like Sunday nights off. That was it. Saturday mornings and Sunday nights. And as tired as I was. I found a happiness that I had hadn't had in a long time. And so started applying to schools and, and got accepted to this place and that place and wasn't sure where I wanted to go. And, and I don't know how I found Cordon Bleu, but uh, in reading a book or something, I guess. And, and I applied kind of as a joke because I didn't think I could get accepted. I did. And so I was like, huh, I've got this chance to, to move to London. And go to school, you know, I, again, I kind of talked to my parents about it. And, and my dad said, look, you got to realize by the time I realized I didn't like what I did, I had a wife and a kid and a mortgage and a car payment. And he said, you know, and I don't regret any of that. You know, I, I love all of it, but I, I didn't have this opportunity. And you're not married and your mortgage is very, very little and you can sell your cars. And, and if you're going to do it, this is your chance to do it. And so I did. Sold everything. Stocks, bonds, I had you know, a bunch of precious metal investments, got rid of those, sold my cars, everything. Took off to London. And and don't, you know, I would do it again in two seconds. And and would mm -hmm. recommend it in two seconds. Yeah. Uh, when I have like um, a chef on, on the show, I always uh, pick up their brain and uh, ask for their suggestion how to cook. Um, you know, a specific um, dish, you know, for food enthusiasts or like home cook or foodies, whoever you want to call uh, them. So we were thinking like uh, maybe, uh, you know, talking about like chicken wings and how you could do maybe like a, a mats style, you know, chicken wing. What unique so spin would you give to them? The first thing I'm going to say is cheat. Okay. And I know that sounds weird, but here's the deal. Like cooking any type of poultry or really anything in a fryer to perfection, meaning it's cooked all the way through, but not overcooked and, and is, is difficult at best, right? And I don't care what your level of, of experience is. So start by pre-cooking your wings in an oven or on the grill, on a smoker, whatever, you know, don't cook them at 400 degrees, cook them at, at like, 250, let them cook nice and slow until they're, until they're tender, 168 degrees. They're perfect, right? And you let, what that does is it allows all that stuff to break down and, and you're left with this, this tender, juicy piece of chicken. Cause if you cook them too high, you're going to cook all the, the juices out. Then you can fry them until they're crispy and you don't have to worry about eating raw chicken. That would be, that would be my biggest tip for it. And so many people, for whatever reason, don't want to do that. And I don't get it. It's like, it's, it, what it does is it, 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 when I worked for Mike Lotta at, at Fig, 
one of the best things he ever said to me was, Maddie, take all the variables you can out of the situation. The less variables you have to deal with at the time of preparation, the better food you're going to make. And it's true, right? I don't have to worry about the timing of this because your home fryer right now says it's cooking at 375, but is it, right? Or is it 350 or 360 or is it 425? We don't know unless you're just probing it all the time with a perfectly calibrated thermometer. And so take that variable away, have this chicken cook. I would brine it overnight. And that's going to give it, you know, a, a lot more flavor and juiciness as well. Pre-cook Do you put them. anything on the brine? I, I like brown sugar in my brine. The spices, I think you should go with whatever sauce you're going to use. It, like kind of mimic that. So you don't want to throw a lot of herbs in if you're going to use this boisterous buffalo sauce because you're going to lose them, right? But the garlics and the onions and the stuff like that, definitely. And, and same thing, you might not want to put a lot of uh, clove and allspice and stuff like that in there if you're going to use a sauce that's not going to marry well with that kind of, of anise-style flavor. Brown sugar, salt, garlic, onion, you know, th- that kind of thing. And then when you fry them, especially for wings, if flour does okay at best, to me, rice flour or cornstarch is what you want to use because that's going to give you the, the, that glassy crispiness that you're looking for and season that flouring because every step of the way, what you're not seasoning is going to be bland, right? And so that's why one of the reasons you brine your chicken is because you're seasoning it. I still, even after brining, will still toss my wings in salt and pepper before I fry them if I'm not putting a dusting on them. If I put dusting on them, the dusting has been seasoned with salt and pepper. What kind of sauce do you like to make? What situation are we in? We're watching the Super Bowl. I'm going Frank's Red Hot with equal part Frank's Red Hot butter, cilantro, and lime juice. Cilantro and lime juice are not equal parts, but, you know, those are the accents. Yeah, we're doing it something on the on the back porch at home, just kind of hanging out. I love fish sauce and wings. And I like to make a fish sauce caramel with ginger and 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 loads of ginger and garlic. I mean loads of ginger and garlic. And then you know, let that stuff reduce and, and your wings come out of that oil hot, toss them immediately in that, maybe some some scallions or that fresh kind of oniony bite. Peanuts. You want to go back to a whiskey pairing. Whiskey and, and salt roasted peanuts phenomenal and and if you want to play on a cocktail coke syrup is the best if you can find it which is hard if you're not associated with a restaurant or know somebody that has one but you can always reduce coca-cola like in a two liter and reduce it to a syrup with put a little fish sauce in there for the seasoning put your bourbon in there so you have your your quote-unquote bourbon and coke right and you got this nice this nice tacky syrupy liquid right and salty roasted peanuts Toss your wings in 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 that that uh, bourbon and coke mixture, and then dust them with those chopped up salt roasted peanuts. Phenomenal. I, we used to, you know, as a kid, you'd see people, and and we used to we picked up on it. Put the the salted peanuts in your Coca Cola. It's uh-huh. such a fun flavor, you know. Okay, yeah, I have to try that. I haven't, yeah. I never, I haven't done that one. And then yeah. for the people that uh, that uh, do it on the, on the barbecue and not uh-huh. um, you know uh, fry them, so that would be like the same approach and then they just um you yeah. know put like the brush the sauce on you know on it yep that way or just pull them right off the barbecue and toss them in a bowl to me a, a smoked wing like that if you're pulling them off the barbecue or the big green egg however you're doing it uh, uh just a traditional alabama white sauce is the best way oh, to go i love it oh yeah you know that, that smoky creamy all goes together the spicy it's like that's it mm-hmm. yeah okay Thank you very much, Matt. I'm going to oh, finish yeah. with a, a series of rapid fire questions, if you don't mind. Oh, yeah, yeah, come on. <laughs> <laughs> so, what's your favorite guilty pleasure food? Ice cream. Ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm not even going to tell you how much, how much I eat of it. It's, uh, I, I will. The pint? Will, the pint? The oh, pint of the ice pint. cream? Yeah, the pint's an easy, <laughs> an easy go. <laughs> so, is it, is it the vanilla your favorite flavor? Um, you then, know, my favorite guilty no. pleasure is mint moose tracks. Uh, and then oh. a lot, a lot of times I'll add white chocolate chips to that as well. Okay. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Right. What, what will be your, let's say three type of food or three dishes that you cannot live without cooking or eating? Oh, wow. Like three style. I couldn't live without French, Italian or Middle Eastern food. That's for sure. 
And as much as I love Asian and Indian food, I, those three just like that could, I could die on those. Wow. That's, that's a tough one. Uh, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. I couldn't live without. I have to have those. Oh, wow. I know that's completely okay. off track. I'm sure your daughter is the excuse, of course, to eat them. You know what? She doesn't like peanut butter and jelly. Now, my, my oh, one-year-old, my one-year-old son will attack one like yeah. you haven't fed him in a week. Um, <laughs> you know, gosh. Third one, third one, last one. Third one, yes. let's see. You know what's always a crowd pleaser is a chocolate lava cake. Okay. That's just always so good. It's on my brain. Yeah. Why yeah. not? That's, okay, right. That's so, what I say. <laughs> so why not? <laughs> why not? Three cookbooks that uh, inspired you the most uh, over your uh, career. First and foremost, the French Laundry. Uh, it is one that anybody can use, home cook, professional, everything. I've I, I read it countless times. Eric Repert's A Return to Cooking. Phenomenal where, you know, he admittedly got burned out and just said, look, I'm going to travel. And what I'm going to do is go to markets and, and I'm going to take a writer with me and an artist with me. And you're going to paint the food I cook and you're going to write about what we're doing. And I'm just going to cook food. And we're going to eat and, and relax. Third one, what, you know, Anthony Bourdain's Le Hall. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I've done a lot of cooking out of that, and uh, was uh, was you know his his life story ending tragically early, but uh, his his yeah, life story yeah. and, and progression I've I've followed a lot. Okay. So if I would come to your house and uh, you open the fridge, what what kind of um, condiments, sauces, you know, that would you have in there? <laughs> Um, condiments and <laughs> you like sauces. that one? We, yeah, that's uh, that's good. We have amba, um, both spicy and regular, which is an Iraqi mango-based sauce. We have Duke's mayonnaise, Welch's Concord grape jelly. We have I don't know if I'm pronouncing it. My Dijon mustard, oh, M A I L L E. Yeah, is that right? Yes, my. Yep, my. Yeah, yep. It's, it's my favorite. I don't want any other yep. Dijon ever. Yeah. Um, yeah. I have the same one. Yep. <laughs> we have um, uh, Heinz ketchup. Okay. Enough pickles to kill a small army. <laughs> um, and I have so many various animal fats. <laughs> oh, really? In the, in the, oh, I have duck oh, wow. fat, beef fat, pork fat, dry aged beef fat. Uh, at one time I had beaver fat, but I've used that. Um, beaver fat. Where do, you, yeah. where, do you get, where do you get beaver fat? Well, from beavers, of course. No, yeah, that, that I would get. <laughs> yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. So, I, I, you know, if I can. What do you use it for? What do you use the, the beaver fat in? Uh, sauteing vegetables. I, I, I had the chance to get a like couple of beavers. potatoes? To, or? Yeah, to cook. And so. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Interesting. It was, it was very, okay. Um, I don't find those in New Jersey. <laughs> no, <laughs> you, you might, but you don't want to eat those guys. Um, so wow, that's interesting. That's okay, what's your oh, um, Estrado? Oh. Uh, it, it's a Sicilian Estrado? tomato paste, Estrado. Yeah, okay. and so it's okay. it's uh, like a a sun dried tomato paste that is phenomenal. Okay. Last uh, question: What's your huh? biggest pet? What your biggest pet peeves in the kitchen? In the kit. Okay, I'm glad you said that because I had this conversation the other day. My two biggest pet peeves in the kitchen not in the restaurant but in the kitchen are one it, when you store air i cannot stand the storing of air right so you have one quart of an ingredient and you put it in an eight quart container and i want i want to choke you right <laughs> and i hear chef it's the only container we have uh -huh. bullshit that just there's racks of containers so obviously you can tell i get very mad about storing air Storage is limited, and we're going to use utilize it to the to the best we can. Consolidate, rotate, don't store air. And then I can't stand this, and this goes for my home kitchen or my restaurant kitchen, is when you open something that has a safety seal, and you just partially open it to get the little bit of ingredient that you need, and you either leave the remnants of said safety seal where you've ripped it like a real ah. jackass, or yes. you leave the entire thing just flapping in the wind and put the lid back on it. <laughs> Tear it all off. All of it. All the way. It's all not the way, all. Yes. It, doesn't, it doesn't take you that long. So don't <laughs> be so rude and self-centered that you leave the safety seal partially torn. 
blows yeah. my mind. Okay. Blows, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a good one. Okay, <laughs> chef. Thank you so much. Thank you very Absolutely. much for your time and uh, oh, yeah. you know to be uh, to be on the show. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Um. Great. Great being here. There it is, me and Chet Mike Bolus chatting about bourbon and rye. I really cannot wait to be able to travel again and spend some time at the Gary's Bar in Nashville. Hope you liked this episode, and if you did, please share it with another chef or a friend. It will only take you two minutes, and it will help me a lot to add more listeners to the show. I want to give, again, a shout-out to a great forum, an educational resource for Chef called The Learning Chef. It is created by Chefs for Chefs. They have a great Facebook page and Facebook group. It's called The Learning Chef. Check it out. Thank you for listening. And in two weeks, my guest will be Chef Jeremy Umansky, and we will chat about fermentation and koji. I see you in two weeks, and until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave a review. Find the show notes at flavorsunknown.com. And if you want to join the Flavors Unknown community, search Flavors Unknown on Instagram and Twitter.